But I think the, the main trend we have seen is that governments essentially cannot rely on a government-only solution to deliver national cyber defence. So what we are seeing is an increasing reach out to industry in every country we deal with uh, to a greater or lesser extent in order to build up that national capacity. Welcome to another episode of the Ion Security Podcast. Joining me today is Paul Tumulty, Immediate Government Program Manager in EMEA, to talk about building national cybersecurity capabilities. Paul, great to have you here today. Luke, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So there's so much to cover here. Where I thought we could start is maybe framing the problem. What is the current lay of the land when it comes to how you're seeing governments think about and approach the topic of building up a national cybersecurity capability. We're obviously going to get into some of the niche details around strategy and operations, some of the programs that you're working on, at least at a high level, but maybe just frame for us what you see in the different regions across EMEA that you're running into this. How are countries thinking about this problem? Well, I mean, it is top of mind now for most governments across EMEA that they have to do something about cybersecurity. So, I mean, at the international level, there are now sort of multiple initiatives underway to try and prove the sort of cooperative model in cyberspace. So there's been a number of international initiatives around things like the UN Governmental Group of Experts and the Open-Ended Working Group, the Open-ended working group was in the press recently, and it's really trying to establish some kind of norms of behavior in cyberspace. So most governments globally are now taking part in that. And the second group I mentioned, they recently signed off an agreement at the UN to establish some basic norms and principles um, of international law as it applies to cyberspace. But unfortunately, the reality is that Whatever's happening at the sort of cyber diplomacy level, we're, we're seeing something fundamentally different at the kind of operational tactical level. So there is a disconnect there between those high political aspirations and the reality on the ground. And it seems like another piece of this that maybe even falls outside of what we traditionally think of when we think of cybersecurity threats, at least in the West, is you see different definitions of what even constitutes cybersecurity threats, legitimate cyber actions, offensive actions. In some regions, you have definitions around cyber sovereignty. I think you increasingly see a focus by a lot of governments and and even corporations with a focus around the sort of national origin of the technology they're using, the infrastructure they're building out, right? We've seen this with 5G. So there seem to be a lot of these issues that sort of even frame the problem of how organizations or rather countries are thinking through their approach to cybersecurity and the threats around that. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to say is there's a lot of mirror imaging in cyberspace and effectively there's a lot of double standards as well. So one country's intrusion is another's legitimate preemptive action, if you like. But some of the big trends we're seeing is is effectively, unfortunately, a, a sort of fragmentation of cyberspace. So we're seeing some national programs where where essentially the government is trying to almost shape cyberspace, if you like, the physical infrastructure, the software, the rules and regulations around how ISPs, for example, should operate domestically. And that's causing, in effect, a long-term fragmentation. So in Russia, for example, we see the RUNET initiative, which is essentially trying to create almost a sovereign cyberspace, if that concept even exists. 
and in the European Union, there's a real move towards that sort of digital sovereignty of the 27 EU member states. China's obviously got its own domestic program. So what you're seeing in effect are these sort of regional blocks emerging or these regional approaches to cyberspace. And that causes a number of different types of issues for the future and well-being and safety of the global cyberspace. I remember a couple of years ago, I was looking at, I think this was on the, the one of the web pages maintained by NATO's CCDCODOE, I may get that acronym wrong, but their Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. And they did a good job of collating a range of different cybersecurity strategies that different countries had put out. It was amazing at the time how many different countries had strategies where they had codified, here's the, the point agency for dealing with these sorts of events and threats whether it's in, in the civilian space, military, security services. But I think we've also seen, certainly on the threat side over the years, partially through things like leaks around surveillance providers, just how many countries are interested in building up an offensive capability. While often these, these strategies are more focused around, and, and some of them are very, very brief and short, what their, their thoughts are around the defensive capability, we know that there's more and more countries entering this space looking to procure some sort of offensive capability as well. So maybe as we start to dive into the strategy component of this, what are we seeing in terms of how countries are thinking about cybersecurity, thinking about who should have the right authorities in this space? What does that look like? Yeah, so I think what we've seen as a general trend is that most countries now recognize at least that they have to have a national approach to this. There has to be a strategy of sorts. And some countries are onto their second and third iterations of that. But I mean, one of the things I would say is that Many times, cybersecurity isn't an end in itself, it's a means to an end, and there's often a need to get a strategy out there, but the reality is that sometimes these strategies aren't actually providing much added value on the ground. There's maybe some tactical gains to be made in nominating a lead national cyber agency or organization, so that's something else we've seen as a sort of gradual realization that you can't have six or seven different ministries or departments all doing their own thing. They need to somehow come together because resources are constrained and limited, finances are are tight, etc. So we are seeing most countries now adopting their strategies and really moving towards a kind of more centralized model of national cybersecurity, which is unusual if you're a US person, you know, you see your multiple agencies there. But in the rest of the world, really, there's a move towards consolidation and coordination at the kind of national level. And that breaks down in a number of different ways. We see and there's no real one-size-fits-all, if you like. There are many different approaches that countries are taking based on their own culture and political history. But we are seeing things like defense and intelligence organizations move into that space that you mentioned, the more offensive side of activity. And then there are a range of other ministries and agencies that are involved in, in national cyber defense. So one sort of good example of this is in the UK. So... Over the last week, the UK has announced the creation of the National Cyber Force. So that's a unified command structure that's been created to bring together the Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of Defence's Science and Technology Lab, GCHQ and the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. But it was interesting to me that in GCHQ's press release, there was a careful distinction drawn between the new National Cyber Force, which will conduct offensive cyber operations, 
and the NCSC, which conducts defensive cyber operations and protects the sort of digital homeland, if you like. So that was a deliberate division of labour by the UK government there to say, we've got the National Cybersecurity Centre that's protecting the homeland and business and government. And then we've created this new entity. So there is essentially a bifurcation and responsibilities there between the offensive and the defensive side. Now, not all governments can afford such a capability, but in the NATO community, at least nine NATO allies have declared their sovereign cyber capability to NATO operations and missions. So and from a transatlantic perspective, at least nine of those um, 30 member states of NATO have declared that they do have an offensive capability and they're willing to use it in support of NATO objectives. So there's quite some interesting developments there. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that you see even in places like the UK and the US that have had organizations, agencies, departments that have had some capability either on the offensive or or defensive side for some time and that have had responsibilities, there's still this discussion playing out around when it comes to a strategy, what should that look like? We had the Cyberspace or Cyber Solarium Commission here in the United States recently looking to kind of shape and maybe alter some of the ways that we go about doing those things and, and the ways that which agencies communicate and coordinate. So I, I guess one question I have is, as you're seeing these different models emerge, and you're seeing countries that have very mature capabilities, have a long history, again, either in the offensive or defensive side of this, is there a particular advantage that maybe some of the newer entrants have where they don't have the sort of institutional baggage, they don't have the political baggage even, and where they're able to start with a clean slate? Yes, that's very much true. But I mean, every government wants a shiny toy at the end of the day. So, And I always think that that offence is often easier than defence, if you like. So a lot of these countries are sort of grappling with, you know, how do I prioritise the build out of a national programme? But there's a definite need and there's a sense that there's a proliferation of offensive capability to the, the sort of regional level, if you like. So those States that operate on the international level, there's very few of them. But when you start getting into the regional conflicts that exist, what we are seeing is is a, that sort of manifesting itself at the regional level or the sub-regional level. So governments are developing a limited offensive capability at the same time as developing um, a kind of national cyber defense model, if you like. I mean, that obviously creates a tension around resources. But I, I would say that the offensive side of it is, is far more obscure, it's far more smaller in scale than the need to coordinate at a cross-government level. Traditionally, what we see is very small specialist units existing in the military or intelligence services of these governments, whereas the cyber defence of the government and the nation as a whole is a much more significant endeavour that really requires that whole-of-government coordination, really requires significant funding, if you like, and a restructuring sometimes of the, the governance structures and the legal authorities underpinning how these governments are doing national cyber defense. So the offensive piece of it is a much smaller component, if you like, than the defensive piece. And are there certain things that you're seeing emerge more as established or, or recognized best practices, certainly in, in all these different contexts in every single country, even within the EU or NATO or even outside that region? you're going to have particularities around which ministries or agencies have a long-standing history dealing with this and maybe even established authorities. But are there certain things that as countries are looking to better consolidate and have maybe more centralized 
at least information and intelligence sharing capabilities, are there certain things that you're seeing emerge that are being recognized as sort of best practices in, in the formulation of a strategy, getting down to the operational level? Yeah, so there are good efforts underway to share best practice. So there are bodies such as the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, which allows those governments that are less capable, that are, are less wealthy, to tap into that sort of expertise. So there's a real international push to try to share best efforts and to basically link the haves with the have-nots and to try and build up a basic type of capability. But in terms of sharing best practice, there are a range of different areas where this works quite well and other areas where it doesn't work well. And so one of the things we try to do as Mandian is, is share those best practices between our customer environments. So it could be something like a common challenge that governments face is how to recruit and train talent, if you like. So there are innovative schemes underway in certain countries. There are concepts such as the cyber reserves. There is large-scale aptitude testing, which identifies talent they may not have known existed, and in order to bring that to bear at the national level. But I think the, the main trend we have seen is that governments essentially cannot rely on a government-only solution to deliver national cyber defence. So what we are seeing is an increasing reach out to industry in every country we deal with uh, to a greater or lesser extent in order to build up that national capacity. And I do think it's a sort of it's an interesting trend where when I was in the UK government some time ago now, there was a lot of secret intelligence. Things had to be marked up as classified. Industry didn't really provide as much added value. Whereas years later, that model's arguably being turned on its head. And the, the concept of secret intelligence, particularly in the cyber domain, is almost rendered fairly redundant because the vast majority of information is owned and operated by the private sector. So there is a real need for, for private sector engagement by governments, and that can be done in a number of different ways, if you like. Yeah, that's one thing I, I'm curious about what you're seeing there, because it seems like obviously this sort of discussion is centered around what we see governments doing and how they're planning and, and thinking through this. But I think one of the trends you see in sort of any region is that a lot of the talent that exists in the private sector, often those are folks that came out of government, came out of the military, and that sort of proliferates into to various industries. But I'm curious how how governments are thinking through utilizing that talent. Maybe it's a domestic capability sort of, of local institutions and organizations and, and companies that have been stood up by people that have left government, but also how they're thinking about international organizations and partnering with them. What does that typically look like? Yeah, so there's definitely a sort of push to in most countries to, to develop an organic industry and reduce their dependency on external entities over time, if you like. But because that will take time, there's a recognition by many governments that to shortcut that sort of expertise gap, they do need to tap into industry for a range of different capability development areas and to tap into best practice. So we, for example, have a global perspective from an Intel point of view. And most governments in the world just don't have that. So of the 193 governments recognized by the UN, I would argue that less than 10 of those truly have a global perspective on what's happening in cyberspace, whereas we can really help them in that realm and help them share best practice and avoid some of the pitfalls that we see in typical governmental cybersecurity programs, where they try to do too much at once, essentially. Our perspective is to really try and home in on a couple of key areas. You're never going to be able to do all these things in such a short time frame. So you really need 
three to five year programs with all the underpinning components across all the cybersecurity disciplines, but then put some realism on top of that and say, right, you're never going to achieve all of that in this time frame. What do you want to be good at? What do you need to protect? What are your crown jewels? And how can we help you protect that if you like? So this is another question that I'm sure is going to vary country by country in, in the sort of governmental model that they have. But I'm curious what you see as the relationship between the federal level or the, the national level. Um, I guess I'm thinking about this in, in an American context, but the, the more localized subnational level local governments and how obviously at a national level, sometimes it's difficult to get all these different agencies and ministries to talk together and share best practices and work together. And then you add an additional layer and component to that. How do you get those capabilities and coordination down to a more localized level? Are there challenges you're seeing emerge with that as well in in particular areas? Yeah, so as these countries set up sort of national cyber capabilities in the European context, for example, the European Union has required all its member states to have a what's called a national competent authority for cybersecurity. And that national competent authority is then responsible for coordinating with critical infrastructure sectors. So I think how governments deal with critical infrastructure remains a significant challenge, if you like. And it goes between sort of two perspectives. Should the national competent authority be essentially holding them to account from an auditing and sort of compliance perspective? Or should they be trying to encourage information sharing on a more trust-based approach? And I think what we're seeing is that the latter is much more successful where governments try to have open industry days, have thematic sectorial-focused information exchanges, the sort of ISAC model, if you like, that works in the US. We are seeing growing interest in the rest of EMEA, at least, in how governments can best deal with critical infrastructure, if you like, because it is a significant challenge. Most governments don't have visibility into that sort of space, and therefore they need a much more cooperative relationship with critical infrastructure sectors in order to really understand the true threat to national cyberspace, if you like. And this gets back, I think, maybe to the piece of the discussion around the relationship with governments and the private sector, and maybe it overlaps a little bit with with critical infrastructure, but I think it's interesting seeing some of the discussions coming out of solar winds in which there's a sort of renewed interest around supply chain security and, and threats, even just to the information supply chain and critical nodes in the global economy or the national economy that maybe multiple organizations are leveraging. And then sort of the need and importance of those entities in the private sector to be conducting information intelligence sharing which almost always necessitates a certain capability on their part as well, right? The capability to ascertain that they've been targeted, to understand and share the relevant IOCs and data with government. But I'm curious if you see that shaping as well, the discussions around how these different governments are thinking about the threats they have to contend with and the parts of not just the government that they have to keep safe, but the sort of whole of society approach to this. Yes, I mean, that is a fundamental challenge for most governments, depending on size and scale, obviously. Interestingly, governments which come from a sort of post-communist transition model, there tends to be an element of state control that remains over some of the critical infrastructure sectors, which actually makes it easier for them to get visibility on what's happening there and get that information sharing cooperation going. 
And so there's a sort of legacy culture, if you like, of you as the CNI entity, the energy provider, you have to tell the government what's going on. Whereas in societies that haven't had that recent historical experience, it really is up to the initiative of the government and the CNI sector or the private sector entity to share that information. So the key thing we advise is you have to have those platforms in place to share. And not all governments have that in place. So it's, it's critical that these types of cultures are inculcated between the centre and the periphery, if you like, so that information sharing, that, that flow of data, that IOC sharing uh, takes place for the benefit of all, essentially. But we do see, again, the haves and the have-nots there. So there are certain sectors that are usually well-resourced. So the bank, banking and financial sectors typically have the best cybersecurity within any state. And then that, as you move out from the banking sector, it gradually dissipates and some sectors are pretty vulnerable. And I think we've seen that in the healthcare sector over the last 12 months where we have seen governments targeting the vaccine supply chain and things like that. And some of those exposed elements in the healthcare sector in particular have really focused governments' minds on what does it mean to have critical infrastructure. I don't think healthcare, frankly, ranked as highly on the agenda as it does now, 12 months ago. So, so what we're seeing is a lot of governments setting up task forces for COVID and COVID vaccine protection, protecting the supply chain. So suddenly there's a whole raft of organisations you've never heard of before that are considered critical infrastructure and need urgent protection because, for example, the cold store supply chain, that type of thing. Do you see those sorts of issues as being catalyst for government industry participation and, and information sharing and, and coordination, or even within government. I guess I'm thinking particularly in the U.S. context, all the work that has been done over the last several years around election security, which has obviously been a very you know, topic, top of mind in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like that some of the relationships and coordination that came out of that is also something that can be leveraged for future types of threats, say ransomware. So there's a particular topic or threat that sort of galvanizes industry and government, but then that serves as a useful model for building further cooperation offers. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about the cyber maturity of governments, and what I always find is that the operators themselves, they know exactly what types of challenges and problems they have, but the ministers and decision makers above them don't understand it. One thing that has absolutely changed is the fact that ministers have to focus on issues like COVID. They have to focus on issues like defending democracy. And all of this has only come to the fore through events. So events have driven uh, almost a cultural shift in the way that senior decision makers consider cybersecurity. It's now not an outlying issue, if you like, but it's on the front pages of the newspapers when, for example, a major healthcare provider gets popped by a, a foreign government. So I do think there has been a bit of a mindset shift and that's driven better coordination. And so national security agencies and ministries have been forced to sit up and take notice and to bring together industry and the private sector and government for the greater good of society, essentially. So I want to get a little bit into some of your experiences in helping build up some of these national cybersecurity capabilities in various countries. So I'm curious where, and again, I would imagine it varies based on the sort of context and what's already been established. But where are you typically starting when you're having those conversations? Is it at the strategy level? Is it a discussion around specific capabilities? Is it the coordination between entities that maybe already exist, but the authorities are somewhat disparate? What do those conversations look like? Yeah, so 
Typically what happens is we'll be at a conference and we'll give a presentation and then we'll get approached by a government to say that we need assistance with technology issues. So the first thing I would say is that the cybersecurity industry is quite guilty of defaulting to a technology solution when in fact you need to usually get back to sort of first principles. So we have a model where we really try to focus a bit more on the governance and strategy side first, because if you don't have those underpinning components in place, then nothing else will work correctly after that. So we tend to try to focus the government clients we deal with back at the strategic level. So, okay, so what's your what are your end goals? What is it you're trying to achieve? What is it you're trying to protect? And how are you currently set up to do that? And often we'll find immediate deficits there, like organizations have been set up but they don't have a clear mission or there are too many organizations. So sometimes we find ourselves recommending that they take three organizations and merge them into one because they've got security expertise, but it's spread too thinly between different governments. So we try to focus initially, at least at the sort of governance and strategy level, and then work it from there. So then we'll move into the operations domain where we kind of cover Intel, DFIR, monitoring capability, et cetera. And then across to engagement, how do they actually engage the private sector and critical infrastructure? And all the way around the sort of circle, if you like. You obviously will will deal with organizations that maybe have a tech debt or they've invested a lot into a particular technology to your, your point with being focused and oriented around that. And then you have to work around that because maybe they're already invested in that or for, for whatever reason, it's a problem. Would you say that that tends to be more of a problem or is it more of the problem you described earlier where it's the sort of lack of a coherent strategy or dealing with disparate agencies that have unclear missions and you're trying to unify that? Yeah, I mean, I'd say at the sort of the higher end of things, it's always an issue about authorities and responsibilities and how that breaks down into organizational dynamics, if you like, because then there's a competition almost within government for resources and that's unhealthy. So what we try to do is bring the various parties together to say, right, you you over there, you've got 10 reverse engineers. Why do you need that capability when that could easily serve the broader government community, for example? So it's often issues like that. And sometimes there's no getting away from that. So we're not trying to say to people that they need to centralize. But what we are trying to recommend is that they at least try to make use of those in-house capabilities they have. And most governments have got a sort of basic level of capability, but quite often it's focused in the wrong areas um, sometimes. So we're dealing with a couple of governments recently, and there are standards for setting up a national CSERT, for example. And a lot of governments are going through a more of an auditing tick box approach to setting that type of capability up. And what we're saying is, like, what kind of end goals do you have here? What are you trying to protect? Because that can often lead to a different conversation about this type of cybersecurity capabilities that they need to then establish. If you like, So they're going down one path because the NIST directive tells you to if you're in the European context. But actually, that doesn't then translate into a genuine governmental cybersecurity capability. So we're trying to bring all the different components together to make sense of them and to help governments drive forward to a better end outcome, if you like. One of the things I thought was interesting, reviewing some of the materials you sent over before this, is the focus around the people component of this and the sort of resourcing. You mentioned cyber reserves, leveraging academia, leveraging private sector. Is there any particularly interesting or creative solutions that you've seen? Because this is, I think, a problem that exists in pretty much every region, in every vertical, the problem of how do I find and retain the talented workforce that I need 
to fill what are sometimes very niche skill sets. But how have you seen different countries approaching that or, or maybe some of the solutions that you think were particularly innovative? Yeah, so a lot of the time what we're dealing with is you're dealing with ultimately civil service rules or military rules of recruitment and retention. So that doesn't really jive nicely with retaining that world-class talent most governments aspire to, nor does it really scale. So, I mean, I think what we're trying to do is identify those best practices and then have an honest conversation with that government department. Sometimes we're talking to human resources people to say, look, your model for recruitment and retention is never going to work. You need to relax the rules to allow a bit more innovation there and how you sort of attract talent. And there's really simple things we've seen which work well. So job rotation schemes within government, recruitment retention initiatives, etc. What we often find, in all honesty, is that in governments, people are there for the mission. So they tend not to be financially driven, and those that are tend to leave quite quickly. But that's a sort of uh, what we try to say is, look, you can see that as a positive and a negative. So in one country I've dealt with, they fund master's programs for a specific military unit, and that generates scores and scores of graduates each year. And then those graduates have to sign up effectively to serve national cyber defense for three years. And then once the three-year term is up, they're free to leave the military or the government and go into the private sector. So that government's essentially recognized that it's still healthy to have those graduates with three years government experience, having formal training qualifications, then go back into society to start up new businesses, etc., that might operate in the government domain in the future again. So there's that kind of long-term perspective. And I do think that Western governments are pretty guilty of short-termism here. Whereas if you look to the other cultures, there's a much longer-term perspective on these things. They think in generational terms rather than election cycles in a number of different ways. So, so yes, we do see those best practices. And my favourite, to be honest, is aptitude testing. So that is identifying naturally talented individuals who may not be aware of cybersecurity as a potential career path. So the best schemes we've seen are those that sort of target school children at the ages of 13, 14, that type of thing. So you maybe get a a little initiative from a government somewhere which is focused on girls, for example, who are aged 13, 14. So you sort of seed the interest at that point and then you sort of progress it. So you need a program that goes from those early years through to sort of bursaries for high school and universities, apprenticeships, etc. One of the common criticisms is that a lot of cybersecurity training is not practical enough. There is a need for hands-on keyboard skills. And again, there are certain countries that are doing a really good job of doing summer camps, for example, for 17 and 18-year-olds before they go to university to really try and identify who is naturally talented here and could we offer them a career path in the government. Zooming this back to the more macro level, are there any countries in particular that you think are doing an especially good job of bringing together all these different components and establishing a national security strategy? Or if you don't want to go into a specific example, things that are sort of hallmarks that you're seeing among some of the more successful countries in adopting these strategies? Well, I always like talking about Estonia. So this is a country of one million people, right, essentially, with a border with the Russian Federation. And they have had a concerted effort since they they suffered that massive attack in 2007. That was really a national wake-up call. So they've really grasped the bull by the horns, and they've set up quite a unique set of capabilities. And they're now seen as a world leader in a number of different areas, digital infrastructure, 
cybersecurity, etc. And they've also set up an effective diplomatic network as well, using a very small number of people to have quite an outsized influence compared to the size of the country. So that that's a model I really like. And I always say to other European governments, you know, go and talk to the Estonians and see how they've done it because they've really got the right mindset. And I do think there's a cybersecurity mindset and it's different for them because of the national threat profile they have up in the Baltic there. So it's different for different countries. They've got different strategic cultures. Unfortunately, we still see a lot of incohate approaches to national cybersecurity. But some of the key lessons we've learned are centralization can help to an extent maximize the use of your resources and don't try and do too many things at once. Be good at something. You don't have to be good at everything. And so it's all about understanding your national threat profile and then trying to drive towards some solutions which will help you in the short to medium to long term. It seems like there's also some promising trends on the more interstate level and sort of the coordination that goes on there. And I think one area we've maybe seen it is sort of the, the coordinated response diplomatically and, and sort of the response in calling out and attributing threats. Most notably, one that stands out in my mind is I think from a couple of years back, we saw various European governments in the U.S. call out the cyber attacks in Georgia that were happening. And I thought that was a very good model and example of that sort of coordinated response and attribution and governments being willing to come out and put that out publicly in a way that I don't think we had seen much of before. But are there other sort of examples or models you would point to that not just within countries and the coordination within various government departments and and ministries, but where you're seeing either building on existing alliances and relationships where you're seeing more coordination at the interstate level in in your region? First thing to say, I guess, is that Governments are still naturally reluctant to say what's going on, right? So if they have suffered an intrusion, I do think there's a problem there in governments being open and honest about when they have suffered an intrusion, if they have indeed detected that, and that is another challenge in and of itself, that often it's a third entity that's informing a government that they have been targeted. So that demonstrates the the lack of maturity there and having that overarching viewpoint on what's happening in your cyberspace. But I mean, I think there are positive trends as well, and we shouldn't overlook those. So I I was privy to a presentation recently on a large-scale disruption of a cyber criminal group, and that showed the power when industry coordinates effectively with governments at a sort of regional level. So that was the Europol, which is the policing entity that sits within the European Union, again, working with industry to disrupt a cyber threat actor with cooperation with the US government as well. But I think the bit of the presentation which I found most interesting was the bit at the end to say, what happened after that? What happened after that disruption? Did that activity then continue or was it completely halted? And the reality is, unfortunately, that it did continue, albeit in a different way. So my lesson there was that Look, the attackers, they will always be innovative. They will always come up with an alternative way of overcoming concerted, coordinated, governmental level action. And in this case, for example, the cyber criminal group set up infrastructure in countries which do not have any sort of national cyber capability whatsoever. So it was the poorest countries in the world. They shifted their infrastructure outside Europe, where there's quite a strong legislative culture and a policing culture and shifted it to countries that cannot help themselves. So for me, that was an interesting lesson to say, look, we have to look beyond the richest countries here. We have to have a global approach to countering malign cyber activity, because if we don't, then the attackers will just set up shop in 
countries and places where we can't get at them. So that was a good lesson for me that you have positive impact at the, the supranational level, but unfortunately the attackers will always fall back on what they know best, which is to exploit weakness. And in this case, they were exploiting the weaknesses of governments inability to have a decent cyber defense capability. And do you think in sort of wrapping this discussion up that lessons taken from that, that that's sort of a message that at least components of government see as a need to be very agile in responding to the sort of exploitation of those loopholes or yeah. the sort of lay of the, the government land and regulatory component of this. Where do you see this sort of going in terms of Government seeing here's the problem today, here are the, the shortfalls, maybe even in the systems and capabilities that we're building today. How do we get to where the threat's going to be in five, 10 years? Yeah, so the, the positive thing that came out of that UN open-ended working group was a recognition, and amongst other things, that cyber capacity building was essential for the future health of, of cyberspace. And cyber capacity building is really aimed at those countries that cannot help themselves, either they're under severe threat on a daily basis from a neighbouring nation state, or they don't have the resources in-house to prioritise cybersecurity. So I think the recognition by all UN member states that cyber capacity building had to be put to the forefront was probably the most important thing that came out of that um, open-ended working group, actually, because that then forces governments to sit up and take notice. But of course, what then needs to happen is those governments that do have the resources need to coordinate amongst themselves because what we often find is we'll turn up in a country, um, say, for example, in Eastern Europe, and we'll find lots of different entities, lots of different governments, lots of different organizations, whether that's the UN, the World Bank, the EU, all trying to deliver cyber capacity building projects um, almost unilaterally. So you've got a confused situation. You've got half a dozen entities on the ground trying to do the same thing, trying to do the best they can for that host government, but none of it's coordinated effectively. So I think what we need to see is the follow-on aspects of that where there are sort of sub-regional working groups established. And there are forums that exist to do this, but they're not as effective as they could be. So things like the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise has got an important role to play there and bringing together these relationships, third parties who wish to help need to be coordinated effectively. And then industry needs to play a part there as well. And again, it needs to be coordinated for the greater good. And just closing here, any particular trends or things that you're watching that obviously I'm, I'm so somewhat asking you to paint with a very broad brush, realizing that the, in each of these individualized contexts, it's going to look different, but any sort of things that you're looking at with how the sort of national capability development is going that would be signposts of, of success and that we're moving in the right direction? Well, it's interesting, you know, the European Union is about to sign off a raft of new initiatives, which I think will actually make it more complicated for European member states to manage cybersecurity. So it creates a whole new landscape. So I think certainly European states are going to have a, a significant challenge uh, over the next couple of years, managing the compliance elements of how the EU wishes to do cybersecurity. Um, but beyond that, you know, there are some some interesting macro trends, and I sort of mentioned them earlier on. And I do think it's the uh, the sort of the slow fragmentation of cyberspace into regional blocks. Again, that's posing huge challenges for governments as they try to impose concepts such as data sovereignty. So it actually makes it more difficult for entities such as us to, to operate globally. 
But there are those positive trends, as I said. There's there's good cooperation, particularly on countering cybercrime. NATO has good cooperation amongst its member states. And other countries are, are looking to these bodies for advice and guidance on how to do things effectively. So the challenge is great, unfortunately, but there's a lot of good people out there trying their best to help. Hopefully we can be a part of that. Fantastic. Always great to end on a positive note whenever you're discussing anything in this space. Exactly. Uh, Paul, great, great chatting with you and, and fantastic to hear not just some of your, your perspective and what you're seeing there, but some of the work that you're doing in these countries. So. Great. Thanks, Luke. Take care. Take care. Bye now.